Today's readings, Luke 12, verse 1 to 12. And that's Luke 12, verse 1 to 12, on page 1044. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge them before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Praise God. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Easter Sunday last week was really great, wasn't it? Uh, We got to witness the baptisms of Sue, of Jenny, of uh, Ella and James, and it was just wonderful. There was just such a sense of joy here, I thought. Uh, We got to celebrate our Saviour's resurrection and celebrate the new life that he gives us as well. It really was wonderful. But around the world, Easter can be also a time of great suffering for Christians. So in um, Indonesia 2021, 19 worshippers were killed on Easter Sunday. In uh, Sri Lanka 2019, one of the worst Easter attacks ever, 259 believers were killed in a suicide bombing. Um, Similarly, in Egypt 2017 and in Pakistan 2016, Um, On that occasion, extremists detonated a bomb in Lahore Park, and 75 people were killed, some of those being children. It's terrible, awful. But for one Christian mother who was there in Pakistan on that occasion, uh, she was quoted in an Open Doors article this week, that attack was a powerful reminder that there is new life and new hope that lasts beyond any fear of threat or death. Um, She says this, we celebrate Easter knowing that at any time a suicide bomber can come and disrupt our service, our worship, our praying. But then I think, will it really be disrupted or will I just be sent into fullness of worship? 
under persecution, she is holding on to something that casts out all fear. She and millions like her will not give in. She's holding on to something that casts out fear. She will not be afraid. This sort of persecution is terrible, but it's not caught God by surprise. Jesus faced it himself, and um, here in Luke, we're starting to see the first signs of the opposition that will put Jesus on the cross. At the end of chapter 11 that we read last week, we see how the Pharisees, um, after the, the woeful dinner party, the Pharisees start to oppose Jesus fiercely, waiting to catch him in something that he'll say. They're not planning an attempt on his life just yet, but Jesus sees a little way down the road where this pressure will turn into persecution. For Jesus himself, that's going to mean the cross. But Jesus also knows that his disciples are going to face it too. He knows that they're going to uh, face the impending threat of death, uh, verse 4 in the verses that Gifty just read for us. Jesus knows that they'll be tempted to disown him. That's there in verse 9 of the verses we just read. And he knows that they'll be brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, verse 11. Knowing this, Jesus wants to give his friends something to hold on to. Something that will help them stand under pressure. And what is that? It's the fear that casts out fear. I think Jesus' words in these verses can be summed up beautifully in, um, in a line from a hymn, which we'll put on the screen. It's this. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. Uh, we're going to spend um, some minutes now finding out what that means. We, we really must find out what that means. Um, we Christians here in the UK aren't necessarily under persecution, but we are under pressure. And we do need this fear that drives out fear. We're going to use that as our summary sentence and we'll consider it in two parts. So uh, firstly, we're going to highlight fear God, you saints. In verses four and five, Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. These are worrying words, aren't they? And this is certainly not the only way that Jesus' friends are supposed to relate to God. But Jesus does tell us that we should fear him. And I know that at this point, our first instinct is going to be, I want to try and minimise or, or redefine this fear so that it's, it's not quite so punchy. But rather than jumping in straight away like that, let's hear Jesus out and see what he says about this fear. Um, in these verses, he gives us warnings in relation to each member, each person of the Trinity. Do you see that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And I think each of these warnings helps us understand what it is to fear God. Firstly, in verses 1 to 7, when we fear God, we remember that God is, that the Father is our judge. So Jesus has noticed this increasing pressure and persecution from the Pharisees. And having noticed that, he tells his disciples to be on their guard against their hypocrisy. That's there in verse 1. Um, this is picking up what we looked at last week. Last week we considered the religious leaders as coffee mugs, didn't we? Shiny, clean on the outside, but on the inside full of the uh, filthy coffee grounds of wickedness and greed. Jesus says to his friends, don't be like that. Why? Verse 2. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. It's very possible to keep hypocrisy hidden for now. It's possible to live a double life always coming to church, always singing the songs, um, knowing all the answers, and yet secretly to be dead to Christ on the inside. Everyone looked at the Pharisees and thought they had it sorted, apart from Jesus. Everyone, apart from Jesus, looked at Judas and thought he was a genuine friend. But even if we succeed in being a make-believe Christian for the whole of our lives... One day what's on the inside will be tipped out for everyone to see. You can fool your pastor. You can fool your friends and family. You might even fool yourself, but you can never fool God. In the end, he is the judge of who is a genuine disciple and who's just part of the crowd. And if on that day it turns out that all you've got is outward religion, then very sadly, verse 5 will be your fate. God the Father has authority to throw you into hell. When we fear God, we remember that he is our judge. Secondly, in verse 9, when we fear God, we won't dare disown the Son. Jesus says uh, in that verse, whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. Again, it's a really terrifying warning. When the kingdom of God arrives in all its perfection, can you, can you imagine anything more terrible than that? To be turned away by Jesus? He will look some people in the eye and say, depart from me, I never knew you. That is the fate of everyone who disowns Jesus before others. Now, I do want to define that, because that's not speaking about a one-off event, rather a continuous action. Um, if it was a one-off event, then Peter himself would be in trouble, wouldn't he? Um, Peter uh, denied Jesus three times, saying, I don't know the man. But 
Later in life, he would repent and publicly preach Jesus in front of thousands. This is a continuous action of disowning Jesus. So it's, this isn't a warning for the person who deeply regrets that one time where they were too embarrassed to speak up and admit that they went to church. Um, rather, if you continue to not speak up for Jesus... This warning is for you. If you refuse to speak up for Jesus, he will refuse to speak up for you too. Depart from me. I never knew you. When we fear God, we won't dare disown the Son in this way. And thirdly, when we fear God, we won't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus' words in verse 10 are some of the most debated in the whole of the Bible. Um, It's sometimes called the unforgivable sin. And I want to acknowledge that it really is disturbing to think about that. There are different views, but here's the one that I find most convincing from Scripture. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a sin that the Pharisees have just committed. In chapter 11... They accused Jesus of doing miracles by the power of the devil. And in both Matthew and Mark, um, Jesus' teaching on the unforgivable sin comes straight after this event. In fact, in Matthew and Mark, um, there's no uh, material in the middle. They're right next to each other. The Pharisees say that Jesus has an impure spirit. They say that he's doing miracles by the power of of evil, and then straight away, Jesus says, blaspheming the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. In this sin, they were rejecting what the Holy Spirit had made obviously clear to them about Jesus. Um, These Pharisees, they knew the Spirit-inspired scriptures back to front, and then uh, they knew all the prophecies about the coming Messiah, And then the Messiah shows up, performing all these spirit-empowered signs, proving he is who he says he is, but they still say no. And more than that, they say, no, this is evil. Their terrible example helps us understand what this unforgivable sin is today, helps us understand what it might look like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit Now, just as then, it means rejecting what the Holy Spirit has made obviously clear to you about Jesus. And it means calling this revealing work evil. I think it will be helpful for us to consider four concrete examples. Um, Let's think about person number one. Person number one. Um, has come into church for the first time and has heard the gospel and understood it and yet hasn't become a Christian. This person almost certainly has not committed this sin. They have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Person two has come into church many times, has not only understood the gospel, 
But the Holy Spirit has, um, well, the Holy Spirit has enlightened this person so that they understand the Spirit-inspired scriptures. Not only that, the Holy Spirit has worked in them to convict them of sin. Not only that, the Holy Spirit has revealed to them that Jesus is who he says he is. But in response, this person has said, no, this is wrong. I won't follow Jesus. I think this person may well have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and this person will not be forgiven. Uh, Person number three. Person number three used to say they were a Christian. Uh, Person number three uh, may even have been baptized. Person number three, though, as time has gone on, has drifted away from Christ, has stopped coming to church and is now living a life that is completely against what is in the scriptures. But they're not outwardly saying all of that was wrong, evil, I hate that. I am worried for this person, but I don't think that they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They haven't said that was evil. And it's, may, maybe they never had the Spirit kind of convince them, uh, reveal Jesus to them. So I don't think this person has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. We do still need to pray for this person, and we do hope that they will come back uh, to faith. However, person number four, um, maybe person number four was a pastor um, and saw time and time again uh, people coming to Christ saw the Spirit working powerfully in people, and the Spirit was um, clearly uh, involved in a lot of his life, and yet at this point, uh, this pastor has turned away from the faith and is writing blog post after blog post, talking about how he's deconstructed his faith, how Christianity is immoral, how it's evil. I suspect this person might well have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I hope those four examples are helpful in considering what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit might look like today. Um, Let me just say a couple of things to those of you that might be worried by this. It's not a sin that that a genuine Christian can commit. You can't make yourself unsaved by blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And secondly, if you're afraid of committing this sin that's a really good thing. That is a really good thing. It is exactly this fear that means we won't dare blaspheme the Spirit or call his work evil. Those who are worried about this sin almost certainly have not committed it. But I do want to say, if you are feeling convicted of your sin, if you are being convinced about the truth about Jesus, then don't say no to what the Spirit is telling you. That is a really dangerous game to play. Let me bring this point together. Jesus says we should fear God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This isn't the only way we should relate to him, but we do need to have a right sense of trembling awe and respect. When we have this fear, we remember that the Father is judge. We won't dare disown the Son. 
and we won't blaspheme the Spirit. A disciple really needs this fear. I'd question why anyone would become a Christian in the first place without this fear. Um, Without it, why ask for forgiveness? Without it, why call Jesus Saviour and Lord? Without it, why um, accept what the Spirit is telling us uh, in the Scriptures and in our hearts? This fear is a defining characteristic of what it is to be a disciple. Fear God, you saints. Let's have the second half of this sentence. Because Jesus' main aim in these verses is not to make his friends afraid. That is not um, his purpose. That's not my purpose this morning. He sees that his people are under pressure, facing persecution a little way down the road. And the whole reason for these warnings is because when you fear God, you have nothing else to fear. Literally nothing else to fear. We'll go back through these verses and see that this second half of our summary sentence is true. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. In verses four to seven, if we fear God, we don't need to fear anyone who would do us harm. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Earlier I mentioned that mother in Pakistan who'd uh, first-hand experience of, of uh, persecution and the ongoing threat of a suicide bomber disrupting their service, their worship, their praying. But she said those wonderful words, but will it be disrupted or will I just be sent into fullness of worship? She understood Jesus' words in this verse. She knew that the worst that anyone could do to her is send her to Jesus. They can do no more than that. And though we obviously don't experience those same threats, we too need to know that all of our fears have an expiration date. Those who would take your job or give you a hard time or reject you, in the infinite scope of eternity, they have zero power against you. And even if other people do give you a hard time in this life, consider God's tender care for you. Verses six and seven, aren't they precious? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. I don't really know why anyone would want to buy five sparrows. Um, Surely there's not really that much meat on them for a meal. Um, Maybe that's why Jesus says they're on special offer. But even these cheapest of insubstantial birds are remembered by God. So when you're struggling, be sure, be certain that God will definitely not forget you. He has numbered the very hairs of your head. Admittedly, that's easier for some than for others. But whether few or many hairs, God doesn't number them out of a a pedantic obsession for detail or he doesn't just love labelling things. 
He has numbered each hair on your head because you are precious to him. You have worth. Like, you matter so much that even the hairs on your head are important to God. At some point, all of us are going to face people who try to belittle us and make us feel worthless. And yes, that hurts. But don't believe them for one second. Don't give these people power over you that they do not have. Your worth, your value is untouchable because you are the precious possession of your father. Second, in uh, verse eight, if we fear God, we don't need to be afraid of speaking up for Jesus. It's natural to be concerned about what others might say uh, when we bring Jesus into the conversation. When your colleagues ask you the question, what did you do on the weekend? Uh, What do you say? There might be a moment of nervousness. How much should I say? Uh, We might sometimes just focus on the Saturday or we might let um, the fact that we went to church on Sunday kind of be like a footnote on the conversation. We might want to say more. We might want to say to our friends, well, yeah, on Sunday morning, I learned about what Jesus teaches about fear. But sometimes we just, we stop short of that. We're scared about what they might say, either to our face or behind our backs. However, if we have a right fear of God, then we care so much more about what Jesus says than what other people say. And he is so proud of you when you do speak up for him. Verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. I think that's pretty awesome. Yes, your friends might say that you're a little bit odd, but Jesus boasts about you before angels. One day he will proudly welcome you home, and he's not going to let you into heaven by the side door and sit you in a corner where you kind of won't be seen. No, Jesus is going to boldly and proudly welcome you in through the front door and say, this is my brother, this is my sister, I love them. Jesus is so proud of you if you are in him. When we fear God, we don't need to be afraid of speaking up for Jesus. We're just so delighted that he'll speak up for us. And finally, in verses 11 to 12, when we fear God, we don't need to worry about what to say. Verse 11, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. After Jesus went up to heaven, Peter and John, his disciples, were in exactly this situation. They'd performed a miracle and they were brought, um, and uh, for some reason people were angry that they'd performed this miracle. They were brought before all the big names, all the important people in Jerusalem. And uh, they were interrogated, but they didn't tremble. 
in Acts 4, we're told how Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this immense speech about Jesus' resurrection. When we fear God, we value this work of the Holy Spirit. Um, It doesn't mean that uh, in preparation for this sermon, I just didn't write anything down and just thought, oh, the Holy Spirit will tell me what to say when I get up here on Sunday morning. Uh, Rather, it means that as I've prepared for this morning, as I've written out what I'm going to say, it's been independence on the Holy Spirit. I've been asking him to teach me what to say, asking me to speak to me through the word. And maybe someday you will be asked to give a defense for your faith. In that day, do not worry. The Holy Spirit is at work and he will teach you what to say. Fear God and trust the work of the Holy Spirit. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear. We're not under persecution at the moment, but we are under pressure. And who knows what that may become a little ways down the road. I think it doesn't um, take a genius to sort of see the direction things are going. And yet we do not need to worry. We do not need to be afraid of what will happen. If you're the sort of person that is often pressed down by worry and anxiety, sometimes you can put a lot of energy into trying to suppress those feelings, trying to chase away those fears, let me suggest that that is not the tactic to go for. Focus on your relationship with God first. Get that right. Recognize him for who he is. Flee to him. Run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind as we were singing earlier. When we focus on getting our relationship with God right first, when we have that right fear or respect of him, we will soon find all our other fears being chased away. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are just, you are merciful, and we worship you. Forgive us for the times where we have treated you with a casualness that denies who you are. Father, we pray that you would give us all a right sense of respect, awe, and fear for your majesty. And thank you as well that you speak such comfort to your people. We pray that you would chase away our fears and give us a certain hope that you will keep us until that eternal joy you have prepared for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be 